Will you turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1? John chapter 1. And if you don't have a Bible with you, we have some. Larry and Len have some here. If you'll get their attention, they'll get a Bible to you so you can follow along. As we look at John chapter 1. John 1, it's page 587 in the Bibles that the fellows are distributing. John 1, page 587. going to read to you a fictitious memo to Jesus of Nazareth, a memo to Jesus while he walked the earth. And it's from the Palestine Management Consultants Company. Here's what the Palestine Management Consultants write to Jesus of Nazareth. They say, thank you for submitting the resumes of the 12 men you've picked for management positions in your new organization. All of them have now taken our battery of tests, and we've not only run the results through our computer, but we've also arranged personal interviews for each of them with our psychologist and vocational aptitude consultant. The profiles of all the tests are included, and you'll want to study them carefully. As part of our service, we'll make some general comments. These are given as a result of staff consultations and come without any additional fee. It is the staff opinion that most of your nominees are lacking in background, education, and vocational aptitude for the type of enterprise you're undertaking. They do not have the team concept. We recommend you continue your search. Simon is emotionally unstable, and he's given to fits of temper. Andrew has absolutely no qualities of leadership. The brothers James and John place personal interest above company loyalty. Thomas has a skeptical attitude that would tend to undermine morale. It's our duty to tell you that Matthew has been blacklisted by the Greater Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus have radical leanings and they show a high score on the manic depressive scale. Only one shows great potential, ability, resourcefulness. A business mind meets people while ambitious, highly motivated. We recommend Judas Iscariot as your controller and right-hand man. Now, of course, the 12 men about whom the memo speaks are commonly known as the 12 disciples. And to these 12 men, Jesus entrusted his mission after he completed his work on earth. And because they were involved in such world-shaking work, we're tempted to think that they were particularly special men. But as you look at their profile, as we'll do in just a bit, it's striking just how ordinary they were. In the title of today's message, which we have for you on the back of your program, they were ordinary people. But they were ordinary people with an extraordinary commitment. Excuse me. You see, the word disciple in your Bible simply means a follower or a learner. It comes from the time in the New Testament era when rabbis or teachers were itinerant. That is, they would move from place to place and they had a following who stayed with them. And this following would listen to them in order to learn from them. These followers, these learners who would follow their teacher, their rabbi, as he went around teaching in an itinerant fashion, were called disciples. 
Last week we saw that John the Baptist was preaching and he was baptizing in the Jordan River. And when he saw Jesus coming, he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And now in John chapter 1 in verse 35, it tells us what happened the next day. John was there again. John the Baptist was there at the Jordan River again with two of his disciples. And when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. This time he specifically directed two of his own followers to Jesus. He was saying, look, he is really the focal point of my ministry. He is the Lamb of God. And then notice what happened beginning in verse 37. When the two disciples of John the Baptist heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following. He asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Jesus notices them following him and he asks them what they want. And they fumble a little and they say, well, where are you staying? And it's kind of like a, a child that's playing with your kids at your house who smells supper cooking and says, what are you having for supper? It's not so much that he wants to know what's on the menu. He wants to know if he can stay. It's really not that these men wanted to know where he was going to pillow his head that night. They were saying, can we come too? And Jesus responds in verse 39. Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about the tenth hour, we're told. Probably ten o'clock in the morning. And they followed Christ from that day on. Beginning in verse number 40, we have the account of Jesus recruiting some of his original 12 disciples, followers. And as we piece the story together, we're going to see several descriptive characteristics of a disciple. We're going to learn from this passage what we have for you in the outline on the back of your program. That disciples are really ordinary people, but they are committed to following Christ. And they enthusiastically invite others to do that because they know who Jesus is really is. The first characteristic of disciples is that they're ordinary people. I wonder how many of us could name the all 12 of Jesus' original followers. Now think about that for a second. And I don't ask that to make us feel guilty, but to point out to you that not many of them were so outstanding that their names come readily to our minds. We know Peter, James, and John, and Matthew, three of those four wrote books in our New Testament. We may remember Thomas because he's called Doubting Thomas due to this famous encounter he had with Jesus after Jesus had risen from the dead. And of course, everyone knows Judas Iscariot. But there's also Philip. And of that 12, there is a second James, not to be confused with the aforementioned James, the son of Zebedee and the brother of John. There's also Simon the Zealot, Thaddeus, Andrew, and Nathaniel. And what's remarkable about this group is that they're really so unremarkable. They were extraordinarily ordinary. And the Bible teaches us that they came from various backgrounds. Four of the twelve are mentioned explicitly in this account in John chapter 1. Andrew, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel. 
It's probable that there's an allusion to a fifth, John himself, who wrote this book. He's probably the unnamed second disciple of John the Baptist who started to follow Jesus. Four of the twelve men in Jesus' original entourage were from a town called Bethsaida. The word means, Bethsaida means the fishing house. They were fishermen. We really don't know much about Nathaniel, also called in the Bible Bartholomew. It's possible that tradition is correct, though, that says he was only the only one of the twelve who had royal blood. We know that Matthew was a tax collector. He was considered the scum of Jewish society because he was considered to be a traitor of his people to the Romans. Simon was a zealot. What's that mean? He was part of a political group who had dedicated their very lives to overthrowing the Roman Empire. Many of the zealots would engage in assassinations to further their political ends. So they had all these different backgrounds. They had different personalities as well. In our passage, we have John, who wrote the book, who quietly and without self-promotion mentions himself just in passing. He doesn't even name himself. We find him as the mild, beloved apostle of the Lord who's almost in the background throughout everything he describes. On the other hand, you have Peter. Headstrong. Quick to speak. He was usually the first to speak. Sometimes he stuck his foot in his mouth. Philip is mentioned a few times throughout this book, and it's almost as if he doesn't quite know. Philip doesn't quite know what's going on. He's troubled and he's trying to figure it all out. And then there's Thomas, who tends to be a little bit pessimistic. That's an understatement. He was the one who said, let's go to Jerusalem and die with Christ. And so there are various personalities, all different. None of them is cut from the same cloth. It's a kaleidoscope of humanity. And they have different roles to fulfill as well. John is the one who wrote this gospel, and he wrote three other books, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, in your New Testament. Peter also wrote, but he's primarily used by God to be the one who flung the door of the church open on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 in your Bible. As Peter was the one who stood and proclaimed that mighty message with great boldness. And then we find in Acts chapter 10, it's Peter who opened the door of the gospel to the Gentiles as well. Philip, we find later in your Bible, served as an evangelist. Tradition tells us that Nathaniel or Bartholomew labored in obscurity in central Turkey. They all had jobs to do. Some of those jobs were prominent. Others quietly served behind the scenes. Now hear this, friends. Everyone who has been called to salvation in Jesus Christ has been called to a task. And we come from different backgrounds and none of us is cut from the same cloth. But God is pleased to weave a marvelous tapestry together using threads of different colors to accomplish his marvelous purpose. And each of us has his own unique role to fulfill in God's plan. I thank God that so many of you are seeking what that is for you. Many of you have found it and you're doing it in God's church. And I encourage any of you who have not or are not to begin doing that. We've inserted in your program today a trifold brochure to help you with that. 
And during the half hour that follows this time, I encourage you to fill that out and to turn it in. If we're to understand our roles and if we're to fulfill them, then we have to understand this next characteristic that I have listed for you in the outline. That disciples are ordinary people, but here's the second thing. They're committed. They are committed to following Christ. Contrary to what many people think and teach, following Christ, being a disciple is not just something for a special class of Christians. In the Bible, the term disciple and the term believer are used interchangeably. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, then you are a disciple, you're a follower, you're a learner of Jesus Christ. Notice how the word disciple is used in your Bible. Acts chapter 6. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing. The church was growing by virtue of people coming to Christ, and those people coming to Christ were called disciples. The next verse tells us, the twelve gathered all the disciples together. Now notice, there's the twelve, and then there's the disciples. We call the twelve the twelve disciples, but in fact, they're really the twelve apostles. Every apostle is a disciple, but not every disciple is an apostle. You can figure that out later. Notice Acts chapter 6 and verse 7. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. The Bible goes on to tell us the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. The followers of Jesus were called Christians. It tells us that the apostles preached the good news in a particular city. They won a large number of disciples and then they returned to Lystra, Iconium and Antioch. Strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. Several years ago, there was a book published by this title, Disciples Are Made, Not Born. Well, that's actually incorrect. Because a disciple is simply a believer who, having been born, having been born again, is committed to following and growing in Jesus. So it's more accurate to say disciples are born and then they are matured. Now, the reason that this is important is that some have separated being a believer from being a disciple. They say that one can be a genuine believer, but not be a follower of Jesus. Let me just say that some of us have done that. Some of us have said it's okay for me to assign the card, go through the prayer, maybe get dunked in the water. But then we'll see after that. The Bible teaches that if you come to Jesus, you come to Jesus to follow Jesus. I have a series of book about books on my shelf about disciple making that were written by a particular author. The books are very helpful in many respects, but he develops this idea that service for Christ and true discipleship is optional for the Christian. Several years ago, a pastor friend of mine took a seminary course in Chicago that was being taught by this particular author. He was anxious to ask him about this issue. But in the class, this author teacher said that, in fact, all believers are disciples and they must be committed to following the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that contradicts what he had said in print. And so a bunch of people raised their hands. And they asked how it was that he said all believers must be followers of the Lord when he said differently in his book. And he said, you know, the first time I came to this seminary to teach this course, there were some professors from the seminary sitting in my class. 
And they began to ask me some hard questions that I could not answer. And they helped me, he said, search the scriptures. And as he studied, he ended up changing his position. That's the good news. The bad news is his books have been out for about 20 years and they're still out there. Just this week, a mega church in the Chicago area, some of you are familiar with Willow Creek Community Church, 15,000 attenders on a weekend. They have spawned thousands of churches in America, primarily designed, and I don't say this to be unkind, but primarily designed to have a show of entertainment every Sunday for people to come. And it attracts large crowds of people. Willow Creek commissioned a two-year study of its own church. And it released the results of that two-year study just this past week. They were wanting to study how well are people growing in the Lord in our church. Can you predict the results? The results were so dismal that the pastor of that church, just in recent days, had to have a business meeting, a family meeting with the congregation to talk about the changes that they need to make in helping people grow in the Lord. Friends, every believer is a disciple. But that discipleship indeed must be matured. It is a process. It's a matter of initial commitment and then, as we're going to see, deepening commitment. John the Baptist pointed these disciples to Jesus and, went, and then they began to follow Jesus. And Jesus turned around and he said, what do you want? And they said, can we come with you? And then they spent the day with him. We don't know the topic of conversation, but some kind of transformation took place in the lives of those two men that day because when they left Jesus, they couldn't wait to tell someone else about him. They took others along and they stayed with him. In verse 43 of John chapter 1, we see that Jesus decided to leave Galilee. And he found Philip and he says to Philip, follow me. That's essentially the same thing that he said in verse 39 when he said, come and you will see. This expression, follow me, is used throughout the Gospel of John as a description of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. It's a word packed with the C word. Commitment. Follow me. In John chapter 8 and verse 12, Jesus spoke to the people and he said this, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In John chapter 12 and verse 26, he says, whoever serves me must follow me and where I am, my servant also will be. In John chapter 21, verses 19 through 22, the Lord Jesus has just brought Peter back into reconciliation with himself after Peter had denied the Lord, you may remember. And Jesus is admonishing Peter and he told Peter what kind of death that he, Peter, would ultimately die. And here's what it says. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter, you're going to die a heinous death. Follow me. Peter turned and he saw that disciple whom Jesus loved. Speaking of John, John who wrote this. And when Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? 
Is he going to die like me? Am I going to be the only one who is martyred? And Jesus answered him. Now hear Jesus' answer from John 21. If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Friends, following Jesus Christ is a matter of commitment. From the earliest moments of salvation. And then it's a deepening commitment as we walk and learn of the Lord, with and learn of the Lord. That's why when people come to Christ in our church, I don't feel the obligation to give them a theological examination. I ask them, do you know who Jesus Christ is? And do you know what he did for you? And do you believe that with all of your heart? You're trusting him alone for your forgiveness of sins. And when we baptize those people who have made that profession... We ask them two questions. Are you trusting Christ alone for forgiveness of sins? And the second question, you've all heard it. Do you promise to follow him in obedience all the days of your life? And that person standing there, that man or woman or that child, they don't know what that means. They don't know what Jesus requires of them. But they make an initial commitment to say, where my Lord leads, I will follow. Some do not. Thankfully, not many. Most do. But you make that initial commitment. And you say, Lord, you teach me your way and I will follow your way wherever that goes. Jesus says, my disciples, follow me. It's an initial commitment and then it's a a deepening commitment. As we compare the Gospel of John with the other Gospels, we find that Jesus on more than one occasion issued a command for the apostles to follow him. It appears that early on in their relationship with Jesus, they followed him sporadically. They spent blocks of time with him and then they would go home. But in Mark chapter 1, we have a second account of Jesus' call to these same disciples. Here's what it says. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and they followed him. Now, this is a different account than what you read in John chapter 1, where Andrew was one of the ones that John the Baptist pointed to Jesus, and Andrew went and followed Jesus. Later, Jesus says to him as he's fishing, now, come follow follow me. Now, what's happening here? There's a growing depth of commitment to which Jesus continually calls his disciples. Hear this, friends. He laid initial truths before them, calling them to initial commitment. Follow me. Come learn of me. And later that commitment deepens. And he says, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. I'll give you the skills to proclaim the gospel to those who will listen. And Mark goes on in Mark chapter 1. When he had gone a little farther... He saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them. Notice the level of commitment. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men, and they followed him. They walked away because Jesus said, follow me. I have a greater purpose for you to fulfill. And in Mark chapter 3, we find that Jesus went up on a mountainside and he called to him those that he wanted and they came to him. In other words, from all the masses of people that were following Jesus, he selected these twelve. 
In Mark chapter 3 and verse 14 says this, he appointed 12, designating them apostles that they might be with him. So for this group, the ever deepening levels of commitment brought them to the point where they formed the inner circle who were continually with Jesus. And so it is, friends, with every believer. Every believer must commit to following Jesus Christ on the first day. But then the Christian life is a process. It's a matter of progressive, deepening commitments. Well, how deep must our commitment run? Jesus, I want to know the end game before I sign on the dotted line. And Jesus says, you follow me where I lead you. How far does that commitment run? In Luke's gospel, he teaches that our commitment must run deeper than our personal aspirations. It must run deeper than our relationships, says Luke. It must run deeper than our possessions and our hobbies. Jesus said, if you don't love me more than possessions or family, then you cannot be my disciple. Disciples are ordinary people with extraordinary commitment. There's a third characteristic of what it means to be a disciple. They enthusiastically invite others to follow Jesus. John and Andrew emerge from their afternoon and evening spent with Jesus. Immediately they go and tell others about him. Notice verses 40 through 42. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was find his brother Simon and tell him, we found the Messiah, that is the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to, to evangelize. You all know what that word means, evangelize. It means to tell somebody the gospel. First thing he did was tell somebody about Jesus. But notice where he began. He began at home. Often we think the work of evangelism is something that takes place out there, so distant that it excludes you and me from our responsibility. We think of missions and the mighty stories we've been told through the centuries of people like Paul in the Bible, a Greek Jew who took the gospel to the tribes of Asia Minor, then to Macedonia, then to Greece. Individuals down through the centuries have taken the gospel to foreign lands and people who've never heard the good news of Jesus. We hear that and we say, isn't that terrific? And all the while, there's a mission field in your backyard and in my backyard. And I just want you to stop in this sacred, somber moment to consider how many times you've told those people about Jesus. And then with that dismal answer for most of us, then we need to ask ourselves, why not? And very often the reason for that is those people know us best. They see me in some other way than what I am on Sunday morning. And I'm going to come and tell them they need Jesus. With my attitude and my words and my actions. Immediately. They went and told someone, and that someone was someone in their home. And they did this intentionally. Notice what verse 41 says. 
the very first thing Andrew did was find his brother. He didn't just happen to cross paths with him. He didn't just say, how's the fishing today? Weather's nice, isn't it? I think I'll go over to Cana for a while. Oh, by the way, I almost forgot. I ran into somebody named Jesus. No, there was a passion to share the good news. He was intentional. He sought him out. You have to hear what we've heard. We have found the Messiah. We have found the Christ. Listen, friends, you don't have to be a professional. You don't have to be a vocational minister in order to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look what happens with Philip in verse 44. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and he told him, We found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. Nathanael was a skeptic. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Nazareth was not looked upon with great favor by those who lived in that region. Maybe behind that skepticism was the fact that they knew that the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, said that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, the city of David. But Jesus, though he was born in Bethlehem, the city of David, in a great expression of his condescension, was forever known as Jesus of Nazareth. Philip didn't argue with Nathaniel. He simply said, come and see. You see, disciples invite others. And they do it intentionally. And they say, you don't have to be a great theologian. You say, come and see. We're frequently confronted by skeptics who say, how can you believe Jesus is God? How can you believe that Jesus has the power to forgive sins? How can you believe Jesus is anything more than just a a good man or a historical figure that we can learn from? And friends, I think every Christian has the ability to respond, whether they can argue profoundly from the scriptures or not. They can at least say, come and see. Come and hear the word of God proclaimed. Come and I'll introduce you to someone or to some people who can share the scriptures with you. Come and see. It's a powerful evangelistic technique because the fact is you and I don't convince anyone to get saved. We're simply conduits of a message. If we get people to come to the Scriptures and see Jesus in the Scriptures, it's the Scriptures the Holy Spirit uses to transform lives and to create life in them. Here's the third and final characteristic that we see in this passage of disciples. They know who Jesus really is. In this passage, we see that these followers of Jesus knew that Jesus was and is the Messiah. Verse 40. 41, the first thing Andrew did was find his brother Simon, tell him we have found the Messiah that is the Christ. Messiah is the Hebrew term used in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, that means anointed one. Christ is a Greek term used in your New Testament, means the same thing, anointed one. The Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. Now, what's this anointing? In the Old Testament, they would anoint people with oil. To signify that they were being set apart by God for an important task. And so we have Aaron being anointed with oil in your Old Testament as the high priest of Israel. Elisha was anointed with oil as God's prophet in Israel. David was anointed with oil as Israel's king. And all three of those concepts, prophet, priest, and king, are bound up in this idea that Jesus is the anointed one. 
And these folks knew that this one who had been promised, we know who he is. He's the Messiah. He's the prophet, the prophet, the priest, the king. And we need to point you to him. They knew a final thing about him, that he was the son of God. Because notice Nathaniel's reaction in verse 49. Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. We've seen that Philip sought out his friend Nathaniel and he said, you've got to come and see him. And when they were on their way to meet him, Jesus saw them coming from a distance. They had never laid eyes on each other before. And Jesus says of Nathaniel, here's an Israelite in whom there's nothing false. Now, you're Nathaniel, and Jesus tells you about yourself. It's a play on words here. Israel was the name given in your Old Testament to a fellow named Jacob. You all remember that? And Jacob's name indicated one who is deceitful. It's as if Jesus is saying here, here is an Israelite in whom there is no Jacob. I've never met you, but Jesus says, I know you're not like your forerunner, Jacob. You're the right kind of Israelite. Nathaniel was taken aback and he asked Christ how he knew him. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Nathaniel took the words of Jesus to be a reference to the fact that God was at work seeing his very thoughts and seeing him when he was out of sight. So he responded with this twofold declaration. Rabbi, you are the son of God because only God could know my thoughts. Only God could see me in spite of the barrier of distance. Now, friends, as God, then this Messiah can be fully trusted. He's not a religious leader, just one among many. He's the Messiah because he is the God, the true and living God. We're going to conclude. But this message is about being a disciple, a follower of Jesus. And we've said that you make an initial commitment to follow Jesus. And the Bible teaches there's a deepening commitment. And yet at the outset, you don't know the road on which the Lord is going to take you. I don't know the road to which the Lord has called me tomorrow, next week, or next month. None of us know that, do we? But here's what I know. The one who died on the cross for Ken Brown can be trusted completely. And because I trust him with my very soul, I will trust him tomorrow with my life. And next week and next month and next year. And I will not say to him, there is some place that I will not go. There is some recess of my life that does not belong to you. You are the king. You are the God. You are the savior. You're the Messiah. You've bid me come follow you. And I delight to do so. And we're going to bow, friends. But this is a convicting message for me. And I would guess for many of you as well. Because Jesus doesn't bargain with anybody. He tells you, I'm God, you follow me. You put your hand in his hand and you let him lead you. 
But many of us have refused to do that. And we have been, as I said several months ago, in a message at the bargaining table with Jesus. We said, Jesus, I'll do this, but not that. And Jesus says, you follow me. My disciples, by definition, follow me where I lead. So we need to bow and do business with Jesus. Some of us need to repent of the, and let me just call it what it is, the arrogance of saying, Lord, I'll tell you what I'll do. We don't tell the Lord what we'll do. He tells us what to do and we follow gladly. We need to repent of that arrogance. And then we need to get busy about doing what the Lord has told us in his word he has called us to do. Reprioritizing our lives so that his priorities become our priorities, not the other way around. Some of you here say, I don't know this Jesus. How do I establish a relationship with him? How do I express this initial commitment to him by believing in who he is and what he has done? It starts here. You realize that you're a sinner, as am I, as are all of us. You recognize what Jesus Christ did on the cross for your sin, and you repent of your sin. You say, Lord, I'm going to, and what do I say every week, guys? I'm going to go your way. That means I'm going to follow you, not my way. I repent, and I receive Jesus into my life. How do I do that? We're going to pray. Many of us are going to confess to the Lord. We're going to seek his forgiveness for our independence, our arrogance, our rebellion. I trust that some of you, are going to receive Jesus Christ as Savior, bow your heart before Him as Lord, and begin on this journey of following Him as a disciple. Let's bow together. I'm going to close in prayer in just a moment. I wonder if there are any people here as your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, nobody looking around, I wonder if anyone here like me will say, Lord, I have not followed you wholeheartedly. Lord, I have followed you reservedly. I have reserved pieces of my own life that I control and which I don't want to give you access to. I've been a half-hearted follower a quarter-time follower, a one-tenth of the time follower, and you call me to full commitment in following you. How many of you would be honest enough to admit that that describes you in some measure? Anybody, just raise your hand. Nobody looking around. How many would you say? Virtually everybody. Thank you. Virtually everybody. Now, I ask that question for this reason. The truth of the matter is the answer to that is not virtually everybody. The answer to that is everybody. Every last one of us. And every, therefore, last one of us needs to repent of that before our God. If you didn't raise your hand, maybe it's because you didn't hear the question. But if you didn't, you should. And now's our time to do business with our God and our Savior. If you've never come to Jesus while we pray, I pray that you'll receive him as your Lord and Savior and begin this journey of following him. Father, we thank you for this time that we could look into your word and see this portrait of a follower, of a disciple. I thank you, Lord, that you give us this breadth of detail about what it means to be a follower of yours, a disciple of yours. Lord, when we first come to you, we don't know what it means. 
And Lord, even now, having walked with you these some 25 years, I still don't know what tomorrow means for me or next week or next month or next year. I do know this, that I follow the one who does know and who's designed all for your glory and my good. And Lord, I therefore trust you completely going into the darkness of tomorrow and next week and next year. And Lord, forgive me for ever bartering with you, ever bargaining with you about what I'll do for you and what I won't. You are the Lord. You are the God. And you tell me where to go. And then I am to obediently follow. Thank you for showing me that when I follow you, it's not a life of drudgery. It's a life of great joy. And Lord, I pray that that's the case for my brothers and sisters here, that they too are repenting of the arrogance that says, I'll tell you, Jesus, what I'm willing to do. I pray that there are people coming to the Savior right now for the first time who are going to begin that walk with you, that marvelous adventure of going down the road on which you lead us. We love you, Lord. We thank you for loving us first. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.